Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. But let me begin by introducing to you Gennady Moknenko. You heard of Gennady Moknenko? Perhaps some of us have heard the headlines. He is a 54-year-old pastor born in the Donetsk area of Ukraine who planted a church in Mariupol in 1992. Since then, according to reports, he's been a pillar of the local community. He's worked with those who are struggling to deal with poverty in the post-Soviet era. He established a network of rehab centers for adults. He founded the largest rehabilitation program for street children in the whole of the country. And he's even traveled overseas to help out with missionary work in Africa. His life was captured in a 2016 documentary called Almost Holy, And it presents him uh, warts and all. I haven't seen it. But for all his faults, reviews heap praise upon the man, describing him as heroic, a modern-day saint. But exactly six weeks ago, a Russian tank opened fire on an apartment block in Mariupol in which his daughter, his adopted daughter, Vika, was living. And she was killed. Moknenko wrote a pain-stricken blog that concluded with these words, forgive me, daughter, that I could not protect you. I really tried. What are we to say when we're confronted with horrific stories like that? Stories that fill the headlines every day? What is Gennady Moknenko to say? How are we to respond when we see innocent suffering? It's not hard to see why I've started with that illustration, is it? Not hard to see the parallels with Job in our reading. Job, the figure introduced in 1 verse 1, a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job was a real man, that much is plain from the rest of the Bible. Turn to Ezekiel 14 later and you'll see that he is as real as Noah and Daniel 
But apart from that, we know very little about him. Uz, I was probably somewhere near Israel, maybe Edom. But we don't know when he lived. People have some ideas, but we're not sure. Yet there is one thing, one thing that the author is determined to get across in verse 1. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. It's going to become very important for us to see that's true of Job as we go through the rest of this book in these coming weeks. Uh, But even more than Gennady Moknenko, Job was a really good man. Uh, God himself gives the same verdict of blameless and upright twice uh, in these chapters. Not that Job was sinlessly perfect, but he was a committed God-fearer. So anxious to do what was right that verse 5, when his kids had had a feast together, uh, he would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Job was a righteous man. He was someone who didn't do anything to deserve the suffering that we're about to see him endure. And yet he did suffer. As we'll see, he suffered terribly. If you were Job... How would you respond? Job is a book that's become a treasure to many of us because it wrestles with the issue of how to respond to innocent suffering, a suffering where there seems to be no cause, where we've done nothing to deserve it. And we don't have to look far to find the relevance of that, do we? It's there in the headlines. It's there in the lives of so many of us here in the church family, mourning the loss of loved ones, feeling like we've lost all that we have, maybe, as the cost of living crisis beds in. On Friday afternoon, a couple from the morning congregation had a Thanksgiving service here for their second son, who was stillborn. A few weeks ago, we held a service to thank God for the lives of those we'd lost during the COVID pandemic. Whether you are here as a, a Christian or not, all of us, we live in a broken world where suffering Apparently meaningless suffering, innocent suffering is all around us. Some of us are feeling that pain right now. And even those of us who aren't will face it one day. All of us need to know how to deal with it. And it's difficult, isn't it? Of all of the challenges in life, dealing with suffering, it's such a difficult thing to do. Which is why we want to hear God's wisdom on it. We're spending this term looking at the wisdom literature in the Bible, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, although not quite in that order. You can ask why we've mixed it up later. Uh, But they're books that have been given to us to help us to live wisely in God's world. And we're beginning with God's wisdom on suffering, Job. Even before we decided to look at the wisdom literature, I had suggested to William that it would be good to teach on Job. That's partly because I'd been doing some reading on the book and I'd found it very interesting, But more than that, I'd been struck by the way that the COVID pandemic caught us off guard. Not we hadn't predicted the COVID pandemic. I mean, I wasn't expecting any of us to do that. But that where the Bible gives us loads of resources to deal with suffering, many of us weren't ready with it. We hadn't spent enough time hoarding the Bible's wisdom. And so we're going to spend the coming weeks learning how to live wisely in God's world. And in Job, particularly, to live wisely in response to suffering. Job, the Bible's book on suffering, God's book on suffering. 
Not everything the Bible says on suffering, but a very good book for us to be in. And notice, it's, it's worth noticing, Job is, is not here to answer the why question. Why do good people suffer? That is to say, it is a question that comes up in the book a lot. Job's friends and he are discussing that sort of thing. It's the question that bugs Job. But it's not a question that we get answered directly in the book. It's not even the question that the book starts out asking. Uh, the question at the heart of the book, the question that we get introduced to from its opening pages is a wisdom question. The battle between Job and his friends is ultimately a question of who has wisdom. Where are you going to find wisdom? And like all the wisdom literature, it asks, how can we live wisely in God's world? In Job then, how can we live wisely in response to suffering? It's the question that we're actually confronted with in this, these opening chapters. It's point one on the handout. How will the righteous respond to suffering? Let's pick up the story from 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. We're given this extraordinary glimpse into heaven and we see God's parliament in session. And maybe parliament is the wrong way of describing it. God governs himself, he is sovereign, he's in control. But he's given some authority to exercise some sort of role in his universe to supernatural beings. And strikingly, we see Satan there, the devil. In fact, Satan here is, is less his name than his title, the Satan, or as the footnote says, the adversary. Uh, he is the accuser, the opponent. That is to say, the devil has been given a role within God's world to act as an adversary, opposing God and his people. Uh, it's a bit like the leader of the opposition in Parliament, specifically tasked to question and scrutinize the work of the government. Of course, there are differences. I'm not trying to make a political comment when I compare Satan and Keir Starmer. <laughs> But Satan has that adversarial role in God's world, and it is in the context of that role that God shows off his prized servant. Verse 8. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Uh, to God's flaunting of Job's godliness, uh, Satan responds with contempt. Of course he honors you, he says. Look at all that you've given to him. And it's true, Job's been given great stuff, hasn't he? Loads of things, as we saw at the beginning of the passage. Seven sons and three daughters. Might not sound that appealing to us, particularly if you are the mum of seven sons and three daughters. But seven and three are good, strong biblical numbers, are reflected again in the livestock. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, not to mention the oxen and the female donkeys. And Job is not going to have any trouble feeding his enormous family, is he? Or indeed finding transportation for them. And the days before people carriers, I reckon 3,000 camels might still do it for you. To put it in modern terms, this is the guy with the picture-perfect family. He's got a regular home delivery slot from Waitrose, and his, 
His massive garage is filled with a, a private motor collection. To say that he has an estate is not just a reference to his car. It is to the hundred acres around his country home. And Satan says, of course he honors you. You've given him all of that. You can almost imagine his dismissive wave of his hand. But take it all away, says Satan, and he'll be filled with hatred of you. In essence, Satan accuses him of being a fair-weather Christian. All well and good when the sun shines, but the moment the clouds gather, the moment there is a hint of rain, the mood changes. His enthusiasm for the Lord will wane, and his whole commitment to the Lord will fold as quickly as the Brompton bicycle of a fair-weather cyclist. And in one of the Bible's most baffling moments, God gives Satan permission. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. It's worth noting here, Satan needs God's permission. He is, if you like, on God's leash. Satan is not an equal to God's. On the contrary, he's only able to do what the Lord permits him to do. He is, as Martin Luther put it, God's Satan. And so we might be wondering why God doesn't stop him, why he lets it happen. That why question which will occupy so much airtime in the chapters that come. But as I said, I don't think that is the question we're supposed to be asking at this moment. The central dilemma of this passage is about what Job will do, isn't it? How is he going to respond to suffering? If Job is so great, how will he respond when everything is taken from him? I wonder if we feel the tension of that question all the more strongly because the challenge bites us so closely. If Satan were to make the same appeal to the Lord over me, would he perhaps have a point? We're ready to praise God when the sun shines, but when things get really tricky, we're prone to go bitter. I say really tricky. I mean, sometimes I, need, I only need the faintest whiff of a metaphorical cloud on the horizon and I'll start to feel grumpy. We grumble, believing that if God really loved us, things would go more smoothly. Maybe we've been cautioned against the prosperity gospel, that idea that God wants us to be happy and healthy and rich in this life. If we're not warned against that, well, these verses should quickly expose that that is false teaching, a dangerous falsehood. But even if we are resisting the prosperity gospel, I think we're vulnerable to a form of it that God generally wants us to have a comfortable existence, uh, maybe not fabulous wealth and perfect health, but something in that direction, uh, that after our sacrifices for the gospel, if we're Christians here, well, God owes it to us, at the very least, to be happy. Don't we give away that we think that when we get so shocked, surprised by hardship? But don't we demonstrate a belief in that when we are offended by trials? Maybe you're aware of how much your relationship with God would be strained if the comfort that you've grown used to were taken away. Or maybe you are at the moment feeling the loss of that comfort and experiencing the strain. Jesus clearly warned that hardship would come. And yet many have fallen away when the storm hits. 
How closely we feel the challenge of the accuser. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. How would you respond if you were Job? Are we ready for the storm? Well, Job was ready. I point two on the handout. The righteous bless the Lord even in the storm. Verse 13 of chapter 1 begins with that ominous foreshadowing. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. We get that intro and then nothing more on that for a while, while well, instead we hear three terrible messages arrive, bringing news of foreign invaders and natural disasters. The Sabaeans first take out the oxen and donkeys and servants. Lightning then, I think, is the fire from heaven, takes out the sheep and more servants. The Chaldeans come and take out the camels and yet more servants. One by one, the blessings of the opening paragraph are being taken out. Climaxing in that harrowing news in verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. A few years ago, this sort of scene would have felt like a fairy tale. But isn't it remarkably close to the lived experience of so many people? Natural disasters and foreign invasions. Isn't that COVID-19 and the invasion of Ukraine? Or Afghanistan? Or any number of other natural disasters and foreign invasions that simply haven't been big enough to make it onto the news? And yet there is something especially tragic about the cumulative impact of these tragedies announced to Job all on the same day. Verse 13, now there was a day, and one after the other, messengers delivering a terrible news. And don't you want to weep? To rise up with Job in verse 20, and to tear your clothes with Job, and to fall on the ground. And then there's the puzzle, and to worship. Job worshipped. Is that what you expected? Didn't we think something else would come? That he would cry out, maybe complain, maybe curse God to his face. But rather, verse 21, he said, Naked I came to my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Far from cursing God, Joe blesses him. And he gives us the reason, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. In other words, I didn't bring anything into the world. I didn't put anything on the table. God did. Everything I had was from him. Christopher Ash has written extremely helpfully on Job. He's taught here before you can find his talks on the website. Uh, but let me really strongly encourage you to get hold of this book, Out of the Storm, Grappling with God in the book of Job. It's a short, easy read and would be a great accompaniment to this series. I've really enjoyed reading that over Easter. In his longer commentary on Job, he explains Job's comments here. He says this, By the nature of the godness of God, he gives. And it is therefore entirely his prerogative to take away as he sees fit, as and when he chooses. Job is recognizing the godness of God, and that's crucial. Christopher Ash goes on, in the moment of his loss, 
Job's first thought is of the God who had first given. There's the response of the righteous. Not cursing God to his face, but remembering the God who had first given. And so far from cursing, Job is able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. But alas, that's not the end of the story. As chapter two begins, we get another glimpse of the court of heaven and an almost identical rerun of the conversation from before. The assembly is gathered, the adversary Satan turns up, and God shows off Job again. Have you considered my servant Job? Only this time, Satan bemoans that his leash was too tight. He was prevented from touching Job himself. 2 verse 4, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Uh, He can give up all his belongings, says Satan, but if if you take his health, and shockingly, again, God gives him permission. Verse six, the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. And so these uh, loathsome sores come up all over Job's body and he's trying to deal with this itch that he seems completely unable to deal with. He grabs a bit of broken bowl to scratch it. By the end of verse eight, Job is sitting in ashes, so close to death, it's almost as though his process of mourning for himself has begun. And aren't we expecting that to be the final straw? Seems to be for his wife, verse nine. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. You can see why she says that. But Job is steadfast. Look at his jaw-dropping reply in verse 10. Uh, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? What extraordinary faith. Christopher Ashley is helpful again. He says, again, as after the first trials, Job's heart is full of God the creator, who is the author of all good gifts. All the good he has received, he received from God. Can he not trust this same God to give him evil, that is harmful things, and to believe that he knows best? It's great faith, isn't it? And though we're stunned by the faithfulness of Job, we know it's the right thing for him to say. In fact, if we were unsure of it, we get it clearly at the end of the episode, don't we? In all this, Job did not sin. I said also at the end of chapter one, in all this, Job did not sin. Each week, we're gonna get a different aspect of the right, wise response to suffering. And this week, we see clearly in Job his faith the faith that trusts God, even with the suffering that he's permitted. Job hasn't seen what we've seen. He hasn't been privy to the heavenly conversations, just as we are in our own circumstances, ignorant of what's going on in heaven. But Job is ready to trust the Lord, even with his suffering. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Someone might legitimately ask me, is Job really serving as a model for us? We need to be careful of that sort of application. Uh, Just because he did the right thing, therefore we must do it. Uh, People do that a lot with Bible's teaching, particularly in the Old Testament, and it can be quite dangerous. We can miss what the author is really trying to get us to do. And certainly Job is in many ways unusual, isn't he? Extremely unusual. His suffering is greater than anything we're likely to face. And we get to see the heavenly discussions that we don't normally get to see. 
But nonetheless, I'm convinced he is being given us as a model to follow. The whole book of Job is cast as a sort of study in whose response to suffering is right. The debates we see between Job and his friends, which we'll look at next week, they're essentially an evaluation of who, who has the right response to suffering. And from this opening passage, it is Job who is commended. From the verdict of blameless in verse 1, repeated by God twice, to the verdict at the end of the episodes, in all this, Job did not sin. And as a spoiler alert for the end of the book, we're going to get told again that Job got it right, and we'll get told twice. The central question in this opening chapter is not about why he suffered, but how he would respond. And Job's response is commended. Clearly, the author wants us to copy Job. But you might say to me, well, we're New Testament believers. Everything's changed by Jesus. Jesus is the one who has responded perfectly like Job. And that is true, isn't it? As we come to a Job with New Testament eyes, we see that Jesus perfectly exemplified the faith of Job. We've been thinking about Jesus' suffering all evening. And we read together those words from 1 Peter 2, which expressed that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. But the verse before the ones that we read says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Job doesn't just fulfill, sorry, Jesus doesn't just fulfill Job's attitudes. He exemplifies it and calls us to do the same. He responds with faith like Job. And more than that, more faith than Job indeed. But he hasn't done it to let us off the hook. He isn't merely Job for us. He is, if you like, Job before us. And he's then laid the path for us to follow. Which is why when Job gets mentioned explicitly in the New Testament in James chapter 5, Job is an example to us, a model for us to copy, a pattern for us to follow. So while Job is extremely unusual, he's given as an extreme example of the inevitable suffering that all of us will experience. Even God's people, even those whom God considers righteous, like Job. And like Job, that suffering will often be inexplicable, seemingly meaningless. We'll be unable to see what's going on in the court of heaven. In fact, the scene in heaven will probably be completely different from this one. We will be left in the dark over the cause of our suffering, but we'll still have to respond. Don Carson, in his extremely helpful book, How Long, O Lord, writes this. When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. Will there also be faith? We won't always know why. We won't normally know why. There will often be mystery. Will there also be faith? Will we have as our first thought the God who has first given? Will we trust that the same God who has given so bountifully knows best when he gives us that which seems to us to be harmful? Will we say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Gennady Moknenko is confronted with those questions at the moment, mourning the loss of his adopted daughter. Many of us will be grappling with them too. And all of us, whether we're Christians or not, 
will be confronted with these questions at some point. How are we going to respond? Are we ready for the storm? Some of us are nodding along in a beautiful eagerness to respond like Job. But if we have tasted even the faintest hint of real suffering, aren't we asking that question at the bottom of the handout? But how? But how? We feel like pigs who are being told to fly. Go on, fly. Flap your piggy little wings. Whatever they might be in this illustration that's slightly overreached. How are we supposed to fly if we're a pig? How are we supposed to respond like Job? We know that God is a good God, that it's his prerogative to to give and to take away, that it's right for him to do what he wants, that he is the good giver whom we can trust. But however much my mind is reconciled to the goodness of God, suffering kidnaps our emotions and refuses to leave us at peace. How am I supposed to make sense of this suffering? If God is so good, so just, so perfect, how am I to understand the existence of innocent suffering? I said this book isn't here to answer the why question. I still don't think it is. But we are still left with a why question that stops us from a full-throated echo of Job's response. And so if you're asking, but how? Don't worry. There's a sense in which Job himself is asking that question, we'll see in chapter 3. Even in chapter 3, he's got lots of wrestling to do. Please read on. Indeed, if you're not asking but how, definitely read on. Let me strongly encourage you to read the rest of the book, because suffering is not a simple issue. It requires a lot of wrestling. Let me encourage all of us to read ahead, because we're not going to have time to read 24 chapters next week, but that's the passage we're preaching on. And let me especially encourage you to read on if you're here as someone who's not a follower of Jesus. Because all of us need an answer to suffering. And here you can come and see God's answer. The Bible doesn't shrink away from the hard questions. It gives us honest answers from real people and most significantly from God. And you might find some surprises here. You'll definitely find wisdom. For now, we're going to turn and sing Job's words in a song by Beth and Matt Redmond, Blessed Be Your Name. It's a song that beautifully expresses this right attitude of Job, but I'm aware that some of us might feel unable to sing it at the moment. And if that's you, don't worry. We've got a lot more of Job to see. But perhaps many of us will be able to sing it as an expression of the intention, an expression of intention a commitment to make this choice in the future. The music group want to come and get ready to lead us in singing. It might be we're able to sing. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be your name. Are you give and take away? My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And here's my prayer, that at the end of the series, when we come to the end of the book of Job, we might be able to sing it again with even stronger faith. Job-like faith, Jesus-like faith. Let me lead us in exactly that prayer. Our Father, thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that you are in control of this world. 
Thank you for all that you have given to us. And we praise you for giving us this book of Job, that we might wrestle with suffering in this broken world and that we might come to know how to live wisely in response to it. Please, in your very great kindness, would you help us to be those who, like Job, are able to respond well, to respond rightly, to, say, to see that you are the God who gives, that you are the God who takes away, and that you are to be blessed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.